A couple of weeks ago, we had a chance to get away with uh, my wife's family, four sisters, four husbands, um, and my mother-in-law, 88, right? Almost. That's always a terrifying thing when a wife says that. It's like, my son is 42. She goes, almost. Does that mean I was off by a day, a year, two years? 88. And we had a good time together. There was a curious thing that happened that I want to relate to you this morning as I want to try and summarize some of the sermons that you've been hearing from us on the types of Christ in the Old Testament. We had uh, looked for a, a beach in Cabo that was uh, wheelchair accessible because we needed to be able to push Sandy's mom as close to the sand as possible and then uh, get her to where we were all going to hang out for uh, a number of hours. And so we, we did discover one that uh, had a great deal of wheelchair access, and that was really cool. Got her down there, and of course... Uh, it was a very tight little cove, and the, the waves, surprisingly, that day were, uh, were quite big, uh, a lot of wind. Uh, there were some uh, boats anchored off, but uh, because there was uh, cliffs on each side and then the sandy beach, it became very obvious to us that there might be some snorkeling to be had, and uh, uh, most of us are avid snorkelers, enjoy it very much. We brought our equipment down, and so uh, we wanted to get out uh, into the water and over to the sides where the, where the cliffs were to do a bit of snorkeling. Uh, I was first to the water, um, probably just because I was willing to abandon my mother-in-law and not help. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I was down uh, going to the water, putting on my uh, mask, and, and a couple of my, uh, one of my brother-in-laws said, it's pretty wild out there, I don't think you should be going out there which we all know you don't say that to a man, right? <laughs> so that was just more incentive to get out there. And, and as I was out about uh, this high and I was uh, cleaning my mask, uh, doing the normal preparation, uh, get it all nice and salivated up, uh, washing it off, putting it on, um, a rogue wave appeared. Now, the waves were, you know, they were a meter and a half, uh, two-meter waves. And as some of you know, every once in a while, there are these rogue waves that are produced. Well, strangely, it came at that exact moment as I put on my mask and I was turning around to say, you know, I'm going for it. And as I looked back, there was <laughs> 10 feet of water above me. <clears throat> and, uh, and I got hit, um, driven back. I, I tried to brace myself. Um, but invariably, I went to my knees, and so as the water receded, there I was found in the praying position with my, uh, with my mask uh, hanging off the back of my head. Again, um, gave everybody the thumbs up, went up. But as I was swimming out and, uh, uh, and looking around, I, I was remembering something strange. Uh, flashback, 45 years ago, not to the day, almost, almost. Uh, we're in Hawaii, uh, and we're on uh, uh, the main island, Oahu. And we went up to the north to go see where all the big surfing competitions went. And I'm 21 years old, 
And as we got to the north coast, I was absolutely astounded at the size of these waves that were pounding the shore. And so, 21 said to my wife, I'm body surfing that. And she said, I don't think you should. Which is something she said to me repeatedly over the last 45 years. And I said, no, I'm going. And so I walked out into the water 45 years ago on Oahu, and I'm not even sure this was a rogue wave. I just think the waves that day were 10 to 20 feet high. And so as I walked out, there, there is that moment when you sort of realize you bit off more than you can chew. And I was walking out, and I remember all the water was draining from my feet. So one moment I was up to here, and the next moment there was no water. That's always a sure indication that the next one is going to be big, right? So all the water sucks out, and I looked up again, and I went, oh, no. <laughs> Fortunately, it did not pound me where I stood. It came past me a bit, so it lifted me. And then I did a complete 360 inside the wave, and was deposited standing. <laughs> so in one moment, I was boom, and I was planted on my feet. And I looked out, and my wife was looking at me like. <laughs> and I took that as God's direction, and I walked out, and I didn't go back in. But I also realized, if I had done a 180, instead of a 360, it would have been my head that was pounded into the sand, not my feet. So that was our honeymoon. So here I am, 45 years later, I'm thinking this, I'm, I'm, I'm reliving it sort of, except one, I'm standing on my legs, now I'm on my knees, and for a moment, I do what preachers do. I come up with sermon illustrations. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, well, that's kind of cool. Is a wave the metaphor of my life? <laughs> now, that doesn't really work, and certainly a, a metaphor, something that, that, that has some sort of analogy to something that you're going through. And, and maybe if I wrote a book on waves, maybe if one day I die, you know, a wave comes along and funnels me into the mouth of a shark, and that's the way I end, then maybe someone will say, man, waves. That's a metaphor for that guy's life. But probably two instances is not enough. However, it made me think again how you are all dealing with this idea of types. And how is it different than a metaphor? What makes what we're preaching about slightly different? And so there are some big questions that we're trying to answer in this series for you. There are some things that we're trying to get across one of the things is, always, is Jesus the eternal Son of God? Because of the eternal Son of God and the second person of the Trinity is something that is real and magnificent and taught, then from Genesis to Revelation there has to be evidence. You have to see that Jesus was not just a baby born in Bethlehem. The second thing is that there's this whole big topic of who's the Messiah, and if the Old Testament indeed is constantly pointing towards somebody that's coming, who is that somebody, and how does Jesus fit the bill? And thirdly, is it true that the Old Testament points to a Savior who is Jesus Christ? A couple of weeks ago, I read a, a, a 
a diatribe by a Jewish rabbi castigating Christians for making this all up. He wrote a very paper about 10 pages long and again said what a, what a foolish thing it was that Christians engaged in this kind of fancy, making stuff up, that somehow Jesus Christ is in any way connected to the Old Testament and that in any way the Old Testament makes any reference to Jesus as the Messiah. So this is an issue out there, and it's an issue that we've been trying to deal with as we talk to you. One of the things that we talked about in type is that it is a mirrored likeness. There's something in the Old Testament that very much mirrors what we're going to see in the future in Jesus. And it's important to know that types resemble their antitypes. And that's why water is not a type of Matt Dressler. That makes no sense. Even if you stretch it a bit and you say that my body is 92% water, that still doesn't make it enough of a, something that is not just an analogy or a metaphor, but a type. Uh, the word here is something that is, uh, uh, it resembles. So, for instance, the Red Sea, passing through the Red Sea can be a type of baptism. It's water, you go into it, you come out of it, and there's a change from beginning to end. One moment you're not free, then you're free as the Israelites went through. So, so that is important. There has to be some sort of resemblance. Uh, secondly, it has to be designed by God to make a point. It can't, you can't just make this up. God has a reason to give you this type so that you can see how it reflects in something that he's going to bring to pass. And that brings in the third point, which is that it's prophetic. God designs it so that we can see how this is a mirrored image of what's coming, and it's in the future. It's something that he wants to make us aware of. So we've been preaching all these sermons designed to help you to see these types of Christ in the Old Testament. And, and there's all sorts of ways in which we bring that about. There are certain people that serve as types and shadows. The Old Testament talks about Joseph and Job and Solomon, just to name three, all of which are sort of like Christ in a certain way. The kingliness of Solomon, the suffering of Job, the turnabout with Joseph, his life looks to be going one way, and then suddenly there's the big reveal. There are certain practices. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament. It says when Jesus came, then those sacrifices are no longer needed because he's the better sacrifice. Circumcision. This was the way it was done in the Old Testament. Now it's not about circumcision of the flesh, as it was in the Old Testament. Now in the New Testament, it's circumcision of the heart. It's a change of heart that is the type. So these kinds of things are there for us to see. And I just want to refashion that this morning. Then Darren and I are going to preach two more sermons on this regarding the kinds of types that we find in the Old Testament. So those are the three big questions we're often trying to answer. And then the question becomes, is it legitimate to search for Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? If we're right, 
There should be ample evidence that Jesus Christ is talked about in the Old Testament. Now, I do agree with the rabbi. If you look up Jesus the Messiah, those precise words, you will not find it in the Old Testament. But he's missing the point about a type. There is far more to type than just finding the exact words in the same way that the word Trinity is not used in the Bible. And yet God the Father, the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are the Trinity. But if you're just looking for the word in order to disprove an argument, that's not enough. Is it legitimate to search for Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? Well, John says, absolutely. In fact, in the opening of John chapter 1, where he's describing a far different birth narrative than the other three, he says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus the Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In other words, law and prophets, that was just a way in which they referred to the Old Testament. Law and prophets was just a, a euphemism that they commonly used to make people understand we're talking about the Old Testament. He said, we have found him of whom Moses in the Old Testament wrote. And who is that person? Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So, let's look for some answers here that we can be helpful with this morning. Luke 24, 27, the Emmaus Road. What does Jesus say to the two guys who are baffled by why Jesus died and disappeared? To them, it looked like there was a story that was going to make sense. It looked like the beginnings of the Messiah being around and maybe coming to fruition. Then he dies and they say, well, that's the end of that story. Guess we were wrong. There's nothing there. And Jesus says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's another euphemism for the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. By the way, that's a point as well. All the scriptures cannot mean the New Testament. Why? It wasn't written yet. The only scriptures then is the whole Old Testament. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What's Jesus saying? I'm there. From the beginning, I'm there. Let me tell you about me all the way through the Old Testament and how this is not the end of the story. God's redemptive work is being completed and I'm in that story from beginning to end. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of the prophets, Moses, the Psalms. Again, it's all about me. I'm in there. I'm there. You just got to open your eyes and see me. You study the scriptures diligently, he says in John 5, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Then he says a little bit later, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. I dare you to go to the first five books of Moses and find Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus says, 
I'm, I'm in there. Are, are you willing to look? Because when I show you the types, when I show you the shadows, when I show you the patterns, the images, you will see me. Hebrews 10 says, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. But then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Well, that's fascinating, except your instant question to me is, what's the scroll? Well, the scroll is from Jeremiah 36, 1 and 2. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, take a scroll and write on it all the words I've spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you until now. Write it all out, the whole story. Put it in a scroll. And what does Jesus say later? Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, O God. Jesus says the Old Testament is about him. He says it's, it's his story is there, foreshadowed. And he reveals it primarily in two ways. There's prophecies, and there's lots of those. And we could preach sermons on prophecy and we would probably have to take two years, maybe three, to show you every prophecy. Some of them you know very well. The fact that the Messiah will be from the tribe of Judah, King David's throne, be sad upon, beaten, be silent in the face of accusations, spend a season in Egypt, ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And I'm just concentrating on the birth stuff. There are another 350 prophecies on his coming. Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. Who's this suffering servant going to be like? What's he going to do? What are some things that are going to happen? I said two ways. That was one. The second is what we're preaching to you over these months. The concept of shadows and types. That's the second way in which Jesus is revealed here. Jesus says the Old Testament is all about him. And Hebrews 10.1 says the law was only a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true forms of those realities. So the New Testament begins to use this type of terminology about something that's a shadow of something that's a reality. Something that's real casts a shadow, but the shadow is an outline of that which is to come. You can tell what it's sort of like, but it doesn't give you all the details. Colossians 2, 16, 17 uses it in the same term. A festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. So all these celebrations that Old Testament people kept, all of those celebrations were shadows of things to come. But the substance, the reality that they were all reflecting in one way or another is actually Jesus Christ. So what's a shadow? Well, it's just a way to describe a type of Christ in the Old Testament. 
It provides an idea. It looks like something, but it doesn't always completely reveal the object. The Old Testament does that. A shadow is evidence that something is, is casting it. If there's a shadow, there must be something creating the shadow. And the Christ, it's someone. And finally, nobody looks at a shadow and thinks that's real. You, you know it's a shadow. Nobody sees a shadow of a tree and a car and doesn't think tree or car. You don't look at a shadow of a tree and think, wow, that's a microwave oven. It, it, it gives you the outline. You, you, you can identify it. But you wouldn't be able to tell me what kind of tree it is. You, you wouldn't be able to completely understand the size of the tree. Declination of the sun can make a small tree look big or a big tree look small. But you know it's a tree. Shadows don't have any substance. They're not the reality. So there is a shadow of things that are to come. The reality is always Jesus Christ himself. But there are these shadows. And the Old Testament paints shadows for us. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. That's such an important verse. The shadow gives you an idea of how God feels about sin. The shadow tells you about sacrifices. The shadow gives you an understanding of what a holy God and an imperfect, sinful people are like. But it cannot make perfect people who are looking to be like God. But there's a shadow of what's to come. So the New Testament identifies many shadows and types of Christ in the Old Testament, and we've been running through them with you. Let me throw some things at you. Matthew 12, 40. Here Jesus is compared with Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. John 3, 14, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That's the sermon I'm going to preach in a couple of more weeks' time on the bronze serpent, so I'm not going to go into great detail here. Something happens in the story of the bronze serpent that becomes a shadow of what Jesus is going to do on the cross. You had a sermon on the bread from heaven. John 6, 32, 33. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of heaven, uh, sorry, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Manna, bread, provision of God, how that sustains you, what's coming in Christ. We haven't done this one, but this is a big one too. The Passover lamb that was always slain over and over at the Passover. A celebration of when God overlooked 
people's sin, and because they applied blood to the door, the spirit of death goes over and keeps you alive. You live while others die. Why? Because there is this blood on the doorpost, the Passover that's celebrated. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. You get a lot of shadow in the concept of the Passover. A lot of shadow in terms of why this lamb had to die. The blood. But the reality is what's coming. The reality is the one who's going to die on the cross for you and for me. And he's going to do away with the need for an animal ever to lose its life again because of human beings. To atone for their sin. You heard a sermon on this. Israel drank of the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. Well, if you read the story, you wouldn't instantly see that. But as you realize the story is a type, it's a shadow of the reality of who Jesus is, once again it begins to make sense. Here's one we're not going to do, but it's equally powerful. You remember the cities of refuge in the Old Testament. You're guilty of a serious crime, and if you could get to a city of refuge, the punishment of the crime could not be enacted upon you. You gained freedom by getting to the city in time. You were protected, and you were not allowed to be punished in a city of refuge for the crime that you committed. And Hebrews 6.18 says, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And then it elaborates again on, on Christ. Jesus becomes a, a city of refuge. I am never going to be punished for my crime. No sin of mine is ever going to held against me. Romans says that. Not no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Because I have Jesus, not the shadow, not the city that protects me for a while. A city that, by the way, if you venture out at night or during the day or you've been there a couple of years and you think you're good and you go out on a hunt and your enemies are waiting for you or the people that you harmed are waiting for you and they nail you, too bad, so sad. You left the confines of the city. But Jesus is my eternal refuge. Nobody will ever be able to pull me out of the city and execute me for my crime. I'm free. Free and clear. Because of what Jesus did for me. Hebrews 10.20 says, We have a new and living way to God which Jesus consecrated for us through the veil which is his flesh. Oh, there's another shadow. That curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, the place where God was, where the high priest could only go once a year, and then on behalf of the people make atonement. That veil that stood as a, a, a recognition that there is something between God and human beings that separates them. And, and that curtain only under certain conditions 
very rarely could be breached and only then by God's eternal decree. <laughs> what happens is Jesus dies. The temple veil is rent in two. It's ripped from top to bottom. And suddenly the way to God through Christ becomes an open way never to be closed again. You can always get to God through Christ. Every single human being. Story of Isaac. It's interesting that Abraham offers him up and he considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead. And so later on, this is given as a, a shadow, a story of, of somebody's faith who would do the unspeakable, think to kill his son, but at the same time thinking, this is a God who can raise him from the dead. I'm not sure why you would ever ask this of me, but, but if I was to do this horrible thing, surely God will reverse it and take care of it. There's a faith there. And Jesus, of course, is seen as God's proof that he does raise from the dead and that he offers forgiveness and resurrection to every human being that is willing to come to Jesus Christ in faith. A little sidebar to think on. I said I'd come back to the law for a moment. Sometimes these things just strike me, and uh, although they aren't particularly necessary to what I'm saying to you this morning, it's a good sidebar. Because the law is seen as a shadow. And so we ask, what purpose then does the law serve? Why is the law given at all, is the question that's often asked. If you can't find salvation through the law of God, then why is it there? What's the answer? Well, I'll give you some bad answers. <laughs> a wrong answer would be something like this. It shows you how to be a good person. The law of God shows you how to be a good person. <clears throat> wrong. Another bad answer. To help you get to heaven. The law of God, in fact, it will not get you to heaven. It would get you to heaven if you could figure out how to be perfect. If you could keep every single law for every single second of your life from beginning to end and never sin once, then okay, it'll get you to heaven. But it, it's not doing it for us normal people. It's only for the perfect people in the world, of which there are, oh wait, zero. <laughs> so what's it about? The knowledge of the law is designed, God designs it to help us understand that human beings at the core are not good. This flies in the face of every single Facebook post nowadays. Human beings are good. Let's celebrate the goodness of human beings. And people love to share stuff about how good people are. I'm not saying people don't do good things. That's not the theology of evil in the Bible. The Bible's theology of evil is that there is evil in every person, not that every person has no good at all. Every person is tainted by some sort of evil. Of course human beings can do good things. But the law helps us to understand that at the core, there is this problem. 
because nobody's perfect. And that helps us to realize that no matter how many people in the world say that the human race is at the core good, the Bible says you're wrong. At the core, there's a problem. There may be all kinds of goodness that is done in the world through human beings, but at the core they are not in a relationship with God. And if you don't have that, you have nothing. If the law was just about putting your best foot forward, you and I could walk through life arguing that I put a better foot forward than you do. Just look to the person sitting beside you. All you got to do is convince yourself you're a little better than them and that you put a better foot forward than them. Trouble is there's a law, and the law becomes a line. And the line means that when we put our foot forward, we're crossing a line. The moment we cross the line, God calls us sinners. It's not about putting your best foot forward. It's about have you crossed the line. And so Romans 3, 20 to 23 makes this great summary statement. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Folks, can you be made righteous by the law? No. Therefore, nobody will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, you become, I become, conscious of sin. We become aware. We have a moment of inspiration. Oh dear, I'm not going to make it on my own goodness. Oh boy, there's certain things in my life I wouldn't want other people to find out about. There are certain thoughts that I don't want everybody to see. I recognize that there's something not holy with me. We become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Apart from the law, there's a righteousness. Can I get that righteousness through the law? Uh, 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 uh. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Ah, there's the law. Here's how you become righteous. I can't get righteous through the law, but I can have that righteousness, what? Through another way. What's the other way? Through faith in Jesus. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In the end, we're all the same when it comes to the concepts of the law. Even those who don't believe in the law, Gentiles. Even those who don't follow it, Gentiles. Even those who do follow it, religiously, like a Jew. It's all hopeless. We're all doomed. None of us will achieve righteousness by being perfect through the law. Do we agree on that? Because that's what the Bible says. But faith in Jesus Christ, oh my goodness, suddenly we can have what we so desperately need in order to be at peace with God. 
And so we've been preaching to you about the shadows and types. And it's like a treasure map. And every time we stand up, whether it's Dave or Darren or myself, we're, we're, we're trying to mark an X. We're saying that the treasure of, of what we're unfolding that particular Sunday, this particular Sunday, is that it always points us back to the, the real treasure. All of it's a treasure map. The whole Old Testament, a map that points to Jesus Christ. And our delight as preachers, is to unravel the mystery of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament so that you see what an advantage it is for us, this side of the cross, to believe in him, to see him so clearly, to know that all things point to him. If you miss that the Old Testament testifies to Jesus Christ, You are the person who never finds the treasure. And you search your whole life for the meaning of religion, for the philosophy of human beings, for goodness versus evil, for what happens after life. You can do all your best religious investigations with this treasure map that you think you have. But if you don't find the X, you found nothing, you got nothing. Doesn't get you anywhere. The shadows and types of Christ in the Old Testament, they serve as a treasure map, and they lead us to Jesus. And that, my friends, is what we've been trying to come to task with every single Sunday. The treasure is Jesus Christ. And we want to preach them every single time that the three of us have a chance. Because we understand that Jesus is the revelation of God. He is the foundation of our faith. He is our hope in our own resurrection and in what happens to us after death. Jesus is worth preaching by me, Darren, Dave, he's worth preaching by you. It's worth living your life for this Jesus. It's worth giving your attention to this Jesus. It's worth serving this Jesus. It's worth finding purpose in your life to communicate this Jesus. Because he's the treasure of all of us. Let's bow in prayer. Father, bless us again this morning as you remind us how important it is to know your Son. You gave your Son to die for each one of us. His death on the cross is not because he needed to die for anything he did. He was the perfect Lamb of God. But because he was the eternal God, he could die for all of our sins. And that is the way to righteousness. We are made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's our experience. That's our joy. That's our passion. It's our love. It's our life. 
Jesus, thank you for what you did for me, for those of us this morning that know you as our personal Lord and Savior. And Father, I would pray again, if somebody is so close but they haven't got the X yet, they haven't made that final commitment to Jesus, may this be the morning they, they reach out, perhaps to somebody else that they know has already made that decision, perhaps to one of us as pastors or deacons, just reach out and say, I need to make sure that I have got what all the treasure in the Bible points to, the Lord Jesus Christ. I need him to be my Savior and Lord. Father, thank you again for all that you are. In Jesus' name, amen.